Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you all with us for Political Rewind. If you're listening in real time, it's Monday, and everybody's so happy about a new work week starting, although it is Fourth of July week, so Jim Galloway, a short work week for everybody. Are you going to be going to watch fireworks somewhere, Jim? No, we're going to be, uh, I think we're going to be uh, more locked down with a dog that doesn't like fireworks. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah, I understand that. That's Jim Galloway. He, of course, is the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday paper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Julianne Thompson who is a Republican strategist, has been involved in state Republican politics for a long, long time. You are also, is there a formal organization, Trump, Women Women for Trump in Georgia that you're Women overseeing? Yes, Women for Trump is an actual organization okay. and, a, uh, and a political action committee called Women Vote Smart. Okay. We're glad to have you back, Julianne. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope we'll have time. You made a trip. You did a trip to Israel with AIPAC. If we get a chance later in the show, we should ask you, just for your impressions. I don't want to get into a big political discussion. Sure. It was technically with their educational arm called AIEF. Uh But yes, um, it was AIPAC sponsored through AIEF, and it was a fantastic trip. And I'd love to talk about my takeaways. There's nothing like going into Jerusalem and suddenly realizing you are surrounded, in some cases, by buildings that are more than 3,000 years old. It's the only place in the world that you can go and open up a Bible and point exactly to where that particular scripture happened. Well, welcome home. Thank you. And Wendy Davis joins us uh, for the first time down from Rome. Wendy, it's a real pleasure to have you here. You are in your second term, I think I'm right, as a Rome City Commissioner. Right. You uh, also are a member of the Democratic National Committee from Georgia. Correct. And uh, you do uh, political consulting work. You've done it for a long time. Jim Galloway, I think, remembers a campaign you worked on way oh, back when. Wendy, Wendy and I go way back. <laughs> far, far further back than either of us want to know. Yeah, want, don't do the math, please. Don't do the math. And you also do consulting But you have an interesting uh, tool that you use for your consulting work. Thank you. Yes, I produce telephone town hall events, um, which I think are one of the best uh, voter contact tools. You put your candidate or your leader of your organization right in folks' bedrooms or living rooms or kitchens, wherever they're answering the phone, and uh, have a really great interactive conversation. So it's kind of like creating your own radio show over the telephone is the analogy we often use. Okay. Um, Wendy, a a member of the Democratic National Committee, we should point out that your husband, Julianne, is a national committeeman for the Republican National Committee. Yes, he is. All right, good. So let's get started on the show. Jim, before we uh, get into uh, a number of the issues that we're going to talk about in more depth, uh, let's just briefly say that there's a uh, breaking news story broke about two hours ago. Jenna Garland who was Kasim Reed's press secretary, was in court today because she was indicted for a violation of the Open Records Act. The, um, she apparently was offered a plea deal by uh, the attorney general's office, which she, her lawyer said she wasn't going to take because they didn't have enough time to process all the evidence. But why is this case of particular interest? Well, number one, it's, it's the first time anyone has ever been prosecute, prosecuted under, under this. Uh, so that's, so that's, and that's, that's probably another reason why she didn't plead out. Uh, uh, it, there's, no president, uh, there's no precedent to follow. Uh, you're kind of you're 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 pushing the frontier and you're creating laws as as you go. So, uh, and and plus it's uh, it, this is only a misdemeanor. No jail time is involved. Uh, the, there could be some fines if she's found guilty. One of the reasons it's also interesting, Jim, is it's kind of at the intersection uh, that we're paying a lot of attention to these days, which is what do journalists when journalists ask for records. Uh, under state law, they are they have the right to collect many, many records. Um, and Jenna Garland, in this case, uh, the attorney general's office would say that they have emails in which she tells her people, 
Don't even pay attention. Ignore them. We're not answering. Slow walk them as as much as possible. Yes. So Mm -hmm. what I started here is the intersection between politics these days and journalism. And we're seeing more and more questions about how uh, journalists are given access, how they're treated by government officials. So there are a lot of reasons why it's a case of some interest, even though they're just misdemeanor offenses. Right, and it's look, it's it's uh, access to documents isn't isn't just uh, something that uh, that that has has been uh, kind of a football with with Democratic players. Republic Republicans play it all the time, especially in state government. Wendy, you look like you're about to say something about this. Well, I just think it's uh, it, it's fascinating how different people have a different approach to open government, right? And uh, and I don't think it's necessarily a partisan situation, but it's a situation that as a city official, I am very cognizant of. And I am somebody who, probably because of my political background, has been more engaging of the media rather than, you know, it'd be okay if y'all come, you know, welcoming the media, trying to make sure that the city is doing a good job telling our story and recognizing that the the media isn't the enemy. Uh, they can help us tell our story. And, uh, and that sort of openness is good for our city, good for our state, good for America, in my personal opinion. Well, I think it's really interesting that you just said that is not necessarily a partisan viewpoint. And that's exactly right, Julianne. We have Democrats who are reluctant to talk to the media. And now, again, we're talking about the difference between an open records request, which is something in Georgia statute that is, in fact, uh, that enables journalists to request things, and more voluntary uh, efforts at communicating with journalists. There are Republicans who don't want to talk to the media. There are Democrats who don't want to talk to the media. My experience has been that what Wendy's saying happens to be correct, that the political leaders who are willing to talk to us, to tell us what uh, we want to know, almost always, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, get pretty fair treatment Uh, And in some cases, better treatment than the people who don't want to have anything to do with us. And that's always been my experience. I'm the former press secretary of the Georgia Republican Party. So I worked with the media on a regular basis. And I personally never received any sort of unfair treatment from them as long as I dealt with them. And if I ignored them, of course, they always felt like they had more to uncover. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my funny experience, she made me think about it. I was deputy press secretary um, for the secretary of state's office way back in the day. And uh, and people, then again, I came from the campaign world, so people tended to be a little freaked out that I worked beyond 5 p.m., right, and was uh, responsive even if it was 5.30 or 6. Because, again, you, in my mind, you, you want to help the media tell the right story. So All right, well, we're going to watch how this uh, uh, unfolds with uh, uh, the uh, case that Chris Carr has uh, brought. Jim, it's uh, July 1st, which means that a number of new Georgia laws go into effect as of today. One of them that'll be interesting, most interesting to watch, I think it's fair to say, is the new law which uh, creates a structure by which six private companies can now grow medical marijuana in Georgia. And of course, the problem for a couple of years since the first medical marijuana bill was passed has been, yes, there are licenses for families who are, are who qualify for medical marijuana, but no way to bring it in the state legally. Now we start the structure. Right, right. Now you start to decide who can grow it and under what circumstances. And it is a, it is a, uh, a very, very burdensome uh, uh, structure that, that that's contained in the laws. I mean, I mean, this has to be, they ha- it has to be grown entirely on indoors, uh, within a camera shot. Every moment of of every plant's life, every plant has to be accounted for. Uh, And what's going to be most interesting, I think, is to see who gets those six licenses. Mm. Yeah, I I have a hard time because I'm I'm not sure, Julianne, uh, I I should have researched this. I don't know how many licenses the state has now given out to people who qualify with conditions the state has said uh, uh, will allow you to purchase um, cannabis oil. But... I don't think it's such a huge number that at least immediately you're going to be making a fortune. Are you off this growing the product? I really don't know how long that's going to take. You and, know. And, I, you know, and I don't know how licenses are going to be given out to dispense as well. Um, so I think that that's yet to be seen. But I'm like Jim. I'm very interested to see who gets those licenses. 
and, you know, who are some of the powers that be that are going to profit off of some of those licenses. And I think that that has been some of the controversy that we've heard from a lot of um, activists, I think, on both sides of the aisle. I I think if you're a state official, you're allowed to own, what, maybe 15 percent? Of a, it's it's uh, it, they they thought of that they they, they thought of of uh, allowing of of how much money that a state official uh, can be allowed to own in that kind of an enterprise. So two additional notes as we watch to see who gets these licenses. Uh, number one, there's still no distribution system set up in the state, Wendy. So. You know, if I were one of the six licensees, I may be able to grow the product, but there's no pipeline to deliver it until the state decides to come up with a system for licensing the distributors. Right. I think I think there's a lot that's uh, cumbersome and confusing, right, about it. And there are a lot of families who are really struggling. I have that friend of mine, his, his son has seizures, and he, he's just crying for 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 these options and these opportunities and you all know agriculture is such a huge part of our economy and as state after state uh, has legalization um, I, I happen to be of the opinion our farmers need to be able to be a part of that process so let's figure out how to how to help folks locally or how to let our farmers be able to you know have a legal crop that that is legal and <laughs> for people to have those opportunities, especially in terms of medical marijuana. It's so important. And I never understood the controversy when it comes to treating intractable seizure disorder or to treating cancer or glaucoma, because a lot of the people that are so fundamentally against using medical marijuana as a treatment, and and that being said, I do not support recreational use of marijuana or the legalization thereof. However, as a person whose sister passed away from cancer, or who actually passed away from chemotherapy as a result of of having cancer, I've seen a lot of drugs out there that are absolutely far worse and have far worse side effects than medical marijuana ever would. And I don't see any of those people who are so fundamentally against medical marijuana um, doing any sort of protesting against some of those other drugs. Um, the other interesting thing about this, uh, Jim, is that pharmacies are now legally able, at least by Georgia law, to distribute uh, marijuana oil. The, the problem becomes that federal law still prohibits it. So if you're Walgreens, CVS, whatever, you're not likely to want to jump in and risk uh, some kind no, of federal if, prosecution. If you're an independent pharmacist, you might. Uh, yeah. You might, although you have to be careful how you advertise it, because th- there are even restrictions on how you cannot use the color green when you advertise it. Oh you cannot. Word. You cannot. I didn't know that. You got to read the legislation. It's 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 really really detailed. <laughs> All right. Wow. So Wendy. There are people, and I'm curious, you as a city member of the city commission in Rome, there are people who believe this is a slippery slope. Julianne already made it very clear in the way she answered that question. She did not want to see recreational marijuana legalized in Georgia. But, of course, the opponents for a long time uh, to even medical marijuana have said that's what they fear most. As a city commission member, do you... I don't, I don't know whether you support recreational marijuana or not, um, but do you think it's more likely that it's suddenly going to pop up in Rome, Georgia, down the road because the legislature has taken that slide down the slope? I, I, I see a very big difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, right? And I think Georgia is a long way from legalizing uh, recreational marijuana. I think a lot of cities have taken the steps to decriminalize it, Right. The question is, do we spend our resources of our police officials and the jail officials putting people in jail for, you know, having a very small amount of marijuana? Or do we write them a ticket? Are you like looking at that students? in Rome? Not just you specifically. Is the Rome Commission looking at that? I have absolutely no thoughts that my colleagues have an interest in that. <laughs> um, but, a, but a lot of cities are, are doing it. But we but again, it, it's a it's about resources. And we do often talk about, you know, where we want our police officers uh, spending their time and energy. So, um, and, and methamphetamine is a, and opioids are a far bigger problem than marijuana is in all of our communities. So to close out this por- portion of the conversation, I will suggest that, um, and maybe we can find it uh, online, the New York Times this weekend ran a piece about how Colorado has changed on, in five years since recreational marijuana 
was legal there. And in some cases, they think things are fine and moving well. And in many others, there are great concerns about what the proliferation of recreational marijuana in the state has been. If we can find that article and post it on our social media platforms, that'd be great. Jim Galloway, another issue that uh, was passed by the legislature and goes into effect today is evidence in sexual assaults. It's been, I think, the law had mandated keeping DNA samples, that kind of evidence, for 10 years after a crime. The new law says 50 years. 50 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 look. Uh, uh, think of these. Think of these uh, uh, serial killer uh, instances. Uh, I think there was one out in California, uh, not too long ago, where they 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 uh, they came after a seventy year old man because they had they had uh, uh, come across the DNA evidence and and retested it and found and went through ancestry dot com to uh, to, uh, to find his cousins. And such, but it's 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 look. This is a this is kind of an interesting Democratic Republican uh, partnership, that is uh, especially between uh, uh, between David Ralston, the House Speaker, and Scott Holcomb, uh, the State Rep. You'll you, you'll remember that that a couple years ago that Renee Unterman tried to step in front of the first uh, uh, attempt to to get rape kits uh, tested. Uh, she got bulldozed. Uh, she is partnered with uh, Scott Holcomb on that issue this year. Uh, and and it is uh, not a coincidence that she's also running for Congress. So so that's helpful. Uh, Julianne, uh, Jim is absolutely correct. It was back in 2016 that Scott Holcomb, who I think is on this show later this week, uh, next week, Scott will be back on the show next week. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There was at the time a terrible backlog in processing of rape kits uh, in many jurisdictions around the state. And and Hokum did partner with Ralston, and they were able to pass a statute back then which expedited the uh, processing of rape kits. And I think they were able to process like 3,000 mm-hmm. in, in a fairly short amount of time. So this is the next step, keeping that evidence for future crimes. How, this is pretty important? I think it's very important because, remember, mm. DNA evidence has the ability to convict, but it also has the ability to exonerate. So I think it's in a very very important step in the right direction, and um, I think it's incredible that we've actually found something that both sides of the aisle can agree on and work together on. I think that uh, Georgia citizens are very happy about that. Yeah, it's uh, so kudos again. Scott Holcomb was the one who took, took the lead in, in making this um, uh, an issue that rose to the top of people's radar screens and um, and it's horrifying and I'm sure Julian you feel this way too to think of all these again we talked about 3,000 in Georgia that were backlogged um, we have such a problem with um, people being uh, you know survivors of assault and the question of will they be believed and you know what's gonna it's so much a part of this me too movement but the the criminal justice aspect of it uh, for too long uh, women and men too are can be victims, but predominantly you think about the the women who have been, you know, having a rape kit put on them is not a a comfortable <laughs> situation. All the, that evidence being collected, and to think that that evidence wasn't being processed was another reason that women wouldn't wouldn't come forward because they thought that um, nothing would happen and no one would be caught, and it's just something they needed to just handle on their own. All right. Um, so those are just a couple. There are a few more uh, statutes that went in effect. You can read about them on Political Insider blog at, um, at AJC.com if you want to see a few more that went into effect on July 1st. By the way, Robert Jimison just sent me a note. He's posted it. That New York Times piece on Colorado five years after recreational marijuana was legalized is now there for you to read on uh, Twitter and I think on our Facebook Live uh, post as well. Which, by the way, if you aren't watching us on Facebook Live, go to the GPB news page. You'll see us all sitting here in our temporary studio. Most of us are wearing black, so we kind of blend in with the scenery. (laughs) (laughs) We're just talking heads. Um, Wendy Davis, you recently were on a, you moderated a panel for the, was it the Georgia Municipal Association? On I don't remember the precise title, maybe you do, but it was essentially helping municipalities understand how to make sense, the census figures, the data that each city gets 
uh, pay off in bigger ways. What was that about? Well, it was really about making sure that cities are attuned to getting ready for the census next year, right? So if, if I could take a step back, a lot of folks don't understand the census is going to be conducted in a different way than it's ever been conducted before. They're not going to send a form to your house. They're going to send an invitation for you to go online or to make a phone call to participate in the census. So uh, there's a lot of concern that communities that have typically been hard to reach are now going to be harder to reach because it's not just, you know, form came to you, fill it out, send it back in. It's you have to take these extra steps. I was trying to convince cities that they need to be very proactive because of all the, the financial uh, ramifications of undercounting, um, that we need to be starting now finding ways because the, the flip side, the good part of the new way to do it is we can take our smartphones or we can take a regular phone, you know, any kind of phone. We can take a laptop, a tablet to places where people are gathered and we can help. You know, I, I want to be in, in, in churches and where they come pay their water bill and in the library. And I'm going to take it to Rome Braves games, right? <laughs> Make sure go down the row. Everybody, have you done your census yet? So, um, but the money is really significant. Can I yeah. get that part? Sure. So uh, the GMA took a figure of what that the That, again, is Georgia, Georgia Municipal, Municipal Association. Association. Yeah, they, they took a figure of the federal dollars that come down to cities and came up with a figure of for every individual who is not counted, that's $2,300 of um, funding that doesn't come to your community. So think about the math there for a second. I've got my little cheat sheet here. So that's for one year. For 10 years, of course, that's $23,000. So if you miss 44 people, right? You undercount, don't count 44 people, college students, right? Or people in a nursing home or the homeless people. 44 people undercounted is more than a million dollars over 10 years that your city would lose. So you get to 218 people and that's 5 million over the 10 years that you would lose. So we're trying to put, there's all kinds of controversy. There's skepticism at, at every angle of the political spectrum about the census. And my point was, we need to be prepared. We need to be helping. We need to get people together now so we're not undercounting the folks. And, and of course, Julianne, what makes this really interesting, by the way, to add to, to your figure, Wendy, and then I'll ask my question, Julianne, uh, in, in fiscal year 2015, uh, which was a period when, although the centennial, I mean, the census is every 10 years, uh, monies are distributed throughout the 10-year period. In 2015, census data was used to determine the allocation of $675 billion, wow. billion dollars uh, for 132 different federal programs. Okay, so having said that, you know my question. We've spent so much time uh, talking about the question of whether the citizenship question, which the administration wants to put on the 2020 census, uh, is strictly for partisan gain. Of course, we've seen the, the, the Thomas Holfeller study which in which he said that, that adding the citizenship question will, in fact, help Republicans uh, win more seats, gerrymander more effectively. So we've had that conversation, and it'll still continue because the Supreme Court kicked that back down to the lower courts. But quite apart from that political question is the question of if you have a if you're a Republican county somewhere, and you decide you want the citizenship question asked, you're looking at the loss of federal funds, perhaps. So it's not just a partisan political question; it's a fiscal question. Well, that, that's true. It puts you in a very precarious situation. I, I'm interested as to how they think that this is going to be the way to go about doing it, to just send an invitation to do it online. I can't imagine that people are actually going to take the time to do it. Which is why I, I would I, think there's going to be a huge drop off. Yes. Not just the people that for years have been paranoid about the census, my mom and dad being one of them, <laughs> would never let the census guy in, never never wanted to answer the questions. Um, but I mean, there's, this is not just going to be those people who probably don't even use email, but people that just don't want to take the time yeah. to bother. It, it, again, the, the political turmoil is at every part of the spectrum. And that's why, again, I was trying, people understand green. They could fight about, you know, citizenship, not citizenship, but um, about the resources coming and people being counted. And that's why it's so important. We're going to have to have trusted voices going to each individual. And somebody who might respond well to me uh, might not be someone who responds well to you, right? And same thing with our, our neighbors who are um, Latinx and our African-American neighbors who are traditionally undercounted. Uh, the most surprising area that's undercounted 
that surprised me was uh, zero to five-year-olds. Uh, folks aren't counting their babies. Wow. Yeah, uh, and and look, it's it's not just green. It is it is pure political power at the federal level. Uh, Georgia has <clears throat> uh, had uh, 9.6, 9.7 million people uh, uh, counted in 2010. Right now, we're estimated to be up above 10.63 uh, million. There's got to be at least one congressional additional congressional seat in that increase. Uh, and if these people don't get counted, then maybe we don't get that uh, that that uh, congressional seat. Maybe one congressional, maybe two two uh, congressional seats go down to one, and that affects both Republicans and Democrats. Well, yeah, that's exactly what why why I brought that up, Jim. The argument has been that we've been all we've been part of here on this show, and it's certainly been talked about uh, across the country, is that if you ask a citizenship question. Uh, the Census Bureau itself says that 6.5 million fewer people, <clears throat> uh, primarily uh, Latinos, um, his, you know, people of Hispanic descent, um, won't want to participate because they're afraid of the government. So it's interesting that if that is a Republican argument, that at the same time, an undercount doesn't help the communities that Republicans are, are, and that's, are that's, in. That, yeah, that's because, I mean, we've, we've got a set number of, of members of Congress, 435. There are going to be, with, with population growth and population decline, there are winners and losers. Uh, for the last, oh, I, I think since World War II, Georgia has been a winner. Uh, and and uh, you hate to give up. Uh, remember that with the congressional seat comes an additional electoral college vote as right, well. Right. By the way, I believe, Julianne, and we'll fact check this, um, I believe that these online questionnaires are merely the first line that the Census Bureau is using. If your mom and dad, skeptics that they are of the Census Bureau, choose not to answer the form... A enumerator will come knocking on their door. Right. So there is a second line to uh, well, get and, and to people. And they'll actually, the really interesting thing, too, is they have twice that they'll try to come to your door, and then they're going to guess, right? Uh, they're going to take, they haven't done this before. They're going to take, like, if, you're, if your tax records for your parents' house says your dad's name, right, they're going to say there's one person living at that house. So it won't be a zero as it would have been in the past, but it's not going to be a two or if there are more people living in that household. And they're also have start, are behind the ball in hiring people. So 2020census.gov slash jobs. Uh, they're, 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 they're literally, they're talking about needing to hire 200 people in Rome, Georgia alone. They're hiring thousands of people across the state, but it feels like you're applying into a black hole. Apply anyway. Uh, they're really well-paying jobs, especially for my part of the state. Julianne, I would think out in your county, Gwinnett, it would be uh, advantageous to have, given how diverse you are now, every single person in that county counted. And uh, this notion that we should have a citizenship question probably would do some harm to Gwinnett County, don't you think? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's something I, I need to give a lot Am more Am I pushing this to. too hard at you? You, you kind of are. <laughs> okay. Uh, so so one, more, one more thing to think about, right? I apologize. <laughs> and this is a really local government kind of thing. Uh, the way we divide up the SPLOST dollars, right, in every community, the cities and the counties sit down and have very fierce negotiations in some communities, but it's all based on those census numbers. Right. So if, if your city loses population relative to your county or your county loses population relative to your city, it's going to change the balance of how those is, tax is that, dollars. Is that written into law? It, I, I, I don't I, know I the answer that, to I that, that, that. I ask that because because if you have a citizenship question, then uh, then you could possibly have those same dollars divvied up according to U.S. citizenship. Mm. Oh, interesting point. Mm. All right, we got to get to a break. We're a little late for our first break in the show. Uh, when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about, and we'll do that in a moment. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, the human toll of moderating Facebook's content. 
we talk with journalist Casey Newton about the people who work for outside contractors monitoring texts or images of hate, murder, child exploitation, animal abuse, and more. Many workers are traumatized. One contractor died. Newton also will tell us what Facebook is doing about it. Join us. Fresh air this afternoon at 3 right here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Welcome back. Um, before we move on to uh, our next topic on the show, you know, every now and then, it doesn't happen often, but every now and then we try to do a fact check based on uh, something that's been said on Political Rewind uh, that we're wondering about. I want to fact check myself if I can, and, and I'll admit this is somewhat gray area that I'll bet, Julianne, you'll have a reaction to. On Friday's show, when we talked about the debate, the Thursday night debate, we talked about the fact, Jim, that every candidate, all 10 candidates, raised their hand in answer to a question, would you give up private, in- should we give up private insurance for Medicare for all? I said that Kamala Harris was the first one to try to walk that back the next morning by saying she understood the question to be something different and that she seemed to be backtracking. Well, I went back. And I looked at the transcript of the Thursday night debate, and I have to say, I, th- I think the way Lester Holt framed the question is open for interpretation. Here's what he said. He said, um, we're going, many people watching at home have health insurance through their employer. Who here would, ab- would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Kamala Harris did say, Jim, that she thought she was asked if she would do that. It's a little squishy, but I did feel that I needed to correct uh, what I had said on Friday's yeah, show. Yeah, it, it might have been better phrased. I think more problematic for, for, for the Democratic candidates on that Thursday night was everyone raised their hand uh, on, on should health care be extended to, to illegal immigrants. I, I want to get into that in a few minutes because I think it's an important conversation. If if we can just yeah, sure. move on to a couple other things and then we'll come back to uh, presidential politics. Jim, um, I guess it was Greg Bluestein who filed a story that David Ralston over the weekend had a meeting of his caucus in which he, according to Bluestein, essentially did two things. Number one, he um, he tried to put behind him. He wants everybody to get together and, and stop uh, uh, whatever pushback they're giving him over this question of whether he's using his job as speaker to take take advantage of that position in, in the interests of his private legal clients, his law clients, but also to say, look, right now we need to be united because we're getting challenged by Democrats out there. The legislature is on the verge of turning over if we're not careful. And so he urged unity, and then he suggested something interesting. He said, maybe it looks like the vice president may be coming in to help legislators, Republican incumbents, hold on to their seats. And there's there's a specific reason for that. Okay, if you're David Ralston... Uh, well, first of all, the, that that that, uh, that Supreme Court decision uh, that uh, that's that uh, in which you had five just, justices say that uh, the courts should stay out of politically based gerrymandering, uh, uh, that that has put a huge target on the speaker, uh, because basically what it what has what it has told uh, told uh, Democrats is that it's open season, that that they can expect no mercy in the 2020 census, uh, in the aftermath of the 2020 census. So if they do not control either the governorship, the House, or the Senate, uh, then things could look very bleak for them over the next 10 years. So you're going to see a huge amount of money being poured into state House races because that's the that's that's the that's the that's the place where where Democrats and Senate and, and Democrats and Republicans are closest. Uh, there are 22 uh, seats. Uh, house House districts where Stacey Abrams uh, won more than forty percent. There are fifteen, and remember that's the margin. Fifteen seats where she won forty five percent, and those are, those are the targets. And if you have in in these November contests, if you have Republicans pressed on whether they supported Ralston and his conduct uh, in, in his law firm, then. Uh, you know, the, the members of the House Republican Caucus are worried about that. Uh, Julianne, I would think uh, that's a particular. Again, I bring up the fact that you're a Gwinnett County resident. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gwinnett County is going to be one of the real ground zeros for uh, that fight. 
Yes, it most certainly is. And um, it, to, to follow up on what Jim said, I mean, the bottom line is uh, our elected leadership, they have two bosses. They have the constituents that elected them and they have the caucus leaders that put them into leadership or the caucuses that put them into leadership positions. And with regard to David Ralston and his leadership, this is a decision for them to make. Um, there's the court of public opinion. There are the, you know, the, the local Republican parties that have passed some measures, but then the state Republican party is staying out of making, coming to any sort of opinion where that's concerned, which I think, um, given the situation is probably the wise thing to do because like i said there's a court of public opinion and then there's reality and reality is that this is ultimately up to the leadership and uh you mean the to, ralston how yes. he fares in yes. terms of being if the republicans can control the house uh next year whether he continues as speaker this is up to the elected leadership yes yeah but what about the larger question of how much is at stake here you know, we always, I've, we've made this point on the show before. Right now, it is Republicans here in Georgia and in, in a number of states who have used gerrymandering uh, brilliantly to uh, the Republican Party's advantage. Of course, the Supreme Court case was a Democratic case out of Maryland and a Republican case in North Carolina. But we've also made the point that when Roy Barnes was governor, uh, his people brilliantly used gerrymandering to make sure Democrats controlled it. I'm so, not sure brilliant is the right word there. <laughs> no? Uh, okay, Wendy, why are you shaking your head like Jim? I mean, they, they, they well, they were criticized for it, but they accomplished what they wanted to. In, in some ways, right? Uh, there, there are a lot of people, and, and I happened to be working down there watching it then, right? Yeah. Uh, when I was in the Secretary of State's office, it was one of my jobs to watch what they were doing. And, I mean, there are a lot of people who say that... Some of the deals that were made were not necessarily in the long-term interest of the party, right? But certainly in the short-term interest of, of, of incumbents. And that, that's always the fascinating thing, right? Like redistricting is one of the things that, uh, you know, has that smaller pool, as Julianne was talking about, right? Those elected leaders, you know, it's sometimes they'll draw a street out to to get rid of somebody they're not a fan of, right? I mean, and that is that really about the long-term interest of the party, or is that about the, the individuals who are currently point well, serving? Point well taken. Democrats created a map that gave them a firmer control, but it didn't serve Roy Barnes well because it clearly was one of the issues that was held against him when he lost his bid for real. It wasn't just the flag, and it wasn't just teachers. It was, it was all things. the animosity about how they had strong-armed the districts uh, through gerrymandering. Yeah, and the question now is, is, do Republicans take that as a lesson or an example to be followed? Well, I, it strikes me that so far what we, yeah, we haven't seen that yet because we're now looking at what the second census since Republicans have taken control, certainly in 2010, Republicans used it to their advantage. Well, gerrymandering is not something that is exclusive to either political party. Right, that was my point. I mean, both sides use it. Thank you. You said it much simpler than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, obviously there's a lot at stake with the election and, um I, I am encouraged that leadership is taking it very seriously and that if the vice president is willing to come into the state of Georgia and help us on that matter, I think that that's a fantastic thing. Um, Wendy, give us a quick snapshot of the lay of the land in terms of partisanship in Rome right now. Um, well, all of our uh, legislators are Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, our city, our, all of our county commissioners are Republicans. Uh, the city commission, there are three of us who... I identify as Democrats of the nine, and uh, those are nonpartisan offices. They're nonpartisan right. offices, but right. I mean, again, and there's no D next to my name, but uh, it's not a secret that I'm a Democrat. Yeah, there's no secret about you being a Democrat. <laughs> right, right, what's right. the What's the racial makeup of Rome? Uh, we're a, a high twenties in African American. The Hispanic population is severely undercounted, and in, in my opinion, and very hidden in our community. So it's you know sing, low single digits. Uh, it's a uh, Still, uh, the community is still in many ways uh, controlled by that, you know, classic um, affluent, uh, older uh, Caucasian But folks. your mayor... My, our mayor is now is, an African-American. First yeah. one. It's a shame that it took us till 2019 to, to break down that barrier. Um, and um, when we do an unusual thing, the nine of us pick the mayor every January. So uh, first thing I did when I got elected, when I was sworn in in 2014, first vote I made is for Bill Collins to have been mayor. 
and it took me uh, several years uh, working with folks to to make that happen. And again, didn't do it because he's a Democrat, but because he's he had been in twenty years and deserved that opportunity to leave. Is Rome the only only city that elects its mayor that way? No, there are other there are others that select their mayor that way. Select. Uh, but, yes, but, select. It's, yes, but it's select. not. Yeah. I, again, we have a city manager form of government, which I'm a big fan of. But I think we could elect our mayor and still have a city. I mean, manager is, is he in essence just a chairman of a county commission? Yes. On a smaller basis, yeah. yeah. All right, let, let's, um, thanks. I wanted to get that little snapshot we have you here. We should ask you about that. Thank um, you. Let's move on. Uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, for the first time, really aggressively spoke out critically of President Trump. It was at his big annual event in which he brings together hundreds of people, supporters, some of whom have been coming to these annual retreats with him for 25, 30 years. And in a conversation, I think it was John Meacham who was leading this particular conversation. Walter Mondale was sitting next to him. Uh, President Carter uh, made this remark about President Trump. Well, the president himself should condemn it, admit that it happened, which I think 16 of intelligence agencies have already agreed to, do, to say. And uh, there's no doubt that the Russians did interfere in the election. And I think the interference, although not yet quantified, uh, if fully investigated, would show that Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election and he was put into office because the Russians interfered on his behalf. So do you believe President Trump is an illegitimate president? <laughs> Based on what I just said, which I can't retract. (laughs) (laughs) President Trump, not being a man, Jim Galloway, to take these things lying down. While he was in Japan uh, at the G20, responded to President Carter. Let's listen to that and then talk about it. Jimmy Carter, look, he was a nice man. He was a terrible president. He's a Democrat, and it's a typical talking point. He's loyal to the Democrats, and I guess you should be. Jimmy Carter, I was surprised that he would make a statement. I saw it. It was not a big thing, but I saw the statement. And it's, you know, a lot of Democrats like to make that statement. He's been trashed within his own party. He's been badly trashed. I felt badly for him because you look over the years, his party has virtually, he's like the forgotten president. And I understand why they say that. He was not a good president. Look at what happened with Iran. That was a disaster. What Iran did to him, they tied him up in knots. Uh, The reason... Ronald Reagan probably became president. Jim, he also, President Carter, went on to say that he thought that the president's border policies were deplorable. He said basically that uh, our country now stands for torture and the kidnapping of little children. Those are really harsh words for Jimmy Carter, of all people. Yeah, but uh, you'll, you'll recall that a, a, a couple of years ago, he also said that uh, that 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 uh, the U.S. was a barely functioning uh, democracy because money had taken such a, a huge hole on our politics. But on this, on this, on, on Donald Trump, <clears throat> you should uh, just just to recall we we forget things that happened. 48 hours two weeks ago and when 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 Donald Trump decided no he did he wanted to de-escalate a confrontation with Iran uh, Jimmy Carter in Sunday school said that he did the right thing he praised him and at that time Donald Trump thought he that Jimmy Carter was one of the best presidents the US ever had. <laughs> Julianne um, I you must have cringed before Trump responded I, I can only imagine how you felt about hearing Carter talk about a president that you were working to reelect. Well, of course, I disagree with former President Carter, but I'm not going to take this opportunity to disparage him. I have a lot of respect for the service that he showed the country, although I disagree with him politically and I adamantly disagree with the comments that he made. But I am glad he is in good health and he is certainly um, going to make his opinion known. And I'm glad that he is able to do that at his age. Wendy, how do you look at this exchange? So, again, I think President Carter has earned the opportunity to speak his mind. Um, That's one thing I admire about people as they get older. They are less constrained and they can just (laughs) be candid, right, and say what they think. I, I think what troubles me the most about all of this is that... The whole issue of Russian interference, which, again, as he said, our intelligence agencies had agreed that there was interference. Um, the president has not admitted it happened. And more concerning to me right now is we, I don't think we're taking enough steps as a nation, as a state, uh, to protect ourselves from similar interference for this upcoming election. Okay. But Carter went past that. 
He didn't just say there was obviously Russian interference in the election. The intelligence agencies have all said that. He went a step further, Julianne. He said that essentially President Trump is an illegitimate president because it was Russian interference that elected him. The Mueller report does not say that. I don't know what the CIA has uh, that may speak to that. But that's what I meant when I said I thought Carter went really far out on this one. Well, I agree with you. And I and I completely, like I said, I disagree with former President Carter. Um, <clears throat> Donald Trump is the duly elected president of the United States. And there was obviously Russian interference, but they interfered on both sides of the aisle. Um, and... As far as well, his comments I, that calling I don't him, know about. Where are they far, interfering in the Democratic well, side? Well, they, they had bots trying to attack Republicans against Democrats and Democrats against Republicans. They would have been, in, they were involved in the election to try to take down our country. Okay. It's not just electing one person. Jim, you get the final word. Yeah, if I can jump in, the, the Mueller report says that, yes, they interfered, and they interfered on Trump's side. Uh, uh, they didn't say, to your point, they didn't say whether it was an effective interference right. uh, of, of any sort. But I should say that this also occurred while, while Trump was in, in in Japan. He had, right beside Vladimir Putin, he was asked if, if he had warned Putin uh, off any further in, interference. And it became something, something of a, a joke. Uh, I just think, th- thank you for that. We got to get to a break. I just think it was interesting to hear Jimmy Carter uh, speak so aggressively uh, in this particular instance uh, about uh, the sitting president of the United States, who, of course, responded as quickly as he could. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way, and we'll come back and have a bit more on Political Rewind. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Tech companies need a lot of energy to power their data centers around the world. The amount of data that you need to, in order to fuel your YouTube or to, to run all of those Google searches, uh, it's an enormous amount of energy, and it's something that many of the companies have struggled with. We'll hear about Google's plan to use clean energy 24 hours a day, seven days a week, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 here on GPB. Jim Galloway, we've now seen the uh, needles moving in two different directions as a result of the Democratic presidential debates last week. Uh, Most noticeably, Joe Biden, after the exchange, particularly with Kamala Harris, but I think more generally because many people thought his performance was not exactly as sharp as it should have been, dropped by about four or five percent, depending on the poll you look at. Uh, Bernie Sanders remained in most of the polling about the same place he was Kamala Harris came up. She picked up the five or six percent that Biden lost in right. most of the polls. And and Elizabeth Warren is is got to be a, a kind of in that APAC too, I think at this point. Uh, have you picked your? I guess because you're on the DNC, you're not going to win doors. Because I'm on the DNC, I'm yeah. uh, a, a now. Uh, Super delegate without right. a vote in the first round, right. uh, which I hope doesn't come to bite us back in the nose or some other body part uh, <laughs> if we have uh, more than one round. Um, so, but no, I am. I am trying. First round meaning the first vote uh, at, at the convention, convention at the nominating right. convention. So we we are still uh, my. I would rather have us said that we can't endorse than say that we can't vote. Uh, I am working very hard to say positive things about all of our candidates. I think we have a, about a, all twenty-three well, of them. Well, well, I don't have time to say positive things about all twenty-three, but it, but I am trying, and I'm and I'm trying to to make sure we're not sowing discord among ourselves. Right? Uh, I I want people. You've got to find your person and and you know knock yourself out trying to get them to be the nominee and. I love that, right? But we can do that without saying the other person's a blah 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 blah, right? We can let's talk about issues. Did you watch the Thursday night debate? Yeah. <laughs> but again, they didn't they didn't talk about the size of their hands, right? They were they were talking about policy. Okay. Right? I mean we can disagree and I mean 
families disagree, yeah. uh, right? And, and there are going to be differences. But but I, th- I think you saw uh, 20 people who all have a, a positive view of the future of this nation. Okay. Um, we are, Julianne, uh, I'm going to, we're not going to talk about presidential politics for, for the next couple of minutes because you said you would love to take a couple of minutes. And by the way, we will be talking about presidential politics a lot in uh, the weeks ahead. I just wanted to get that quick uh, item in there about how the polling seems to be shaping up. So tell us briefly, you were you were in Israel as a guest of APAC, which is the biggest lobbying organization, pro-Israel lobbying organization, maybe in the world, certainly in the United States. Um, so we're not going to get into the policies, the problems. What do you think? Well, first of all, l- let me just be technical and say I was a guest of AIEF, their educational foundation, okay. their educational arm of APAC. Um, but I, I learned so much. I mean, it wasn't just about the history of Israel, which is which is rich, and it's not just about the fact that you can walk down the street and, and like I said earlier, point to where a, a scriptural story takes place and, and see it right before your eyes. We we did get into the political complexities, which I won't detail here, but I will say that I did have the opportunity to visit the Israel-Lebanon um, border and the border between Syria and Israel. I had the opportunity to be in the home of a woman who is an Israeli citizen who lives on the border of the Gaza Strip. Um, we saw rocket shells that had been dropped on her moshav while we were there. She explained to us what it's like to live in Israel and what it's like to uh, to deal with that situation on a daily basis. Yet they prosper. Yet they're leading the world when it comes to issues of desalinization. And they actually have the only... Um, that's the only place in the world that the, the, the desert is actually receding. They have made the desert bloom. Made the bloom. desert bloom. Jim Galloway, you were posted there for a while. Yeah, yeah, post, post 9-11. It's been about eight weeks there. Um, what's interesting, and we're really running out of time, but what's fascinating about going to Israel, I think, whether you're in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem uh, or any of the other parts of the country, is um, how little... You can how you can be there having a full experience and not ever being aware of the kind of uh, tensions and uh, problems that uh, uh, and the threats that could be going either way. Yeah, and you know after spending a life lifetime outside outside Israel, you go there and and you realize this is an incredibly <laughs> yeah. small place yeah. with an overabundance of history. You've been there. I haven't. I haven't. I'd love to come on another time and talk about my recent trip. I went to Taiwan and learned about their government and their 40-year-old democracy. So that'd be fun to talk about sometime. Summer vacation. We Everybody goes off. <laughs> We're out of time. Uh, Wendy Davis, Julianne Thompson, Jim Galloway, thank you so much for uh, being here for Political Rewind today. Thank you all of you for listening to us uh, today. By the way, We are coming up on a very important milestone, uh, and you'll hear more about it later. In about a week or so, Political Rewind will be five years old, moving into our sixth year on the air. And it's all thanks to all of you out there who listen to us and tell us you want more Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you again for another Political Rewind. Uh, In the meantime, have a great afternoon.